Okay. I will, um, I'll read the case. Uh, it's case 19, Ordinary Mind is the Path. When Zhao Zhou asked Nanchuan, what is the way? Nanchuan said, the ordinary mind is the way. Zhao Zhou said, can one strive for it or not? Nanchuan said, when you strive for it, it recedes. Zhao Zhou said, if we don't try, how do we know it is the way? Nanchuan said, the way is not something known or not known. Knowing is false perception. Not knowing is just being oblivious. If you truly arrived on the way that is free from doubt, you would realize that it is vast like open space through and through. How is it possible to impose affirmation and denial? At these words, Zhao Zhou was suddenly awakened. Let's sit for five more minutes. Um, would, let's see, Gail, would you read, um, reread the koan and then Wu Men's comments for us, please? Thank you. Okay. Ordinary mind is the path. When Zhao Zhou asked Nan Quan, what is the way? Nan Quan said, the ordinary mind is the way. Zhao Zhou said, can one strive for it or not? Nan Quan said, when you strive for it, it recedes. Zhao Zhou said, if we don't try, how do we know it is the way? Nan Quan said, the way is not something known or not known. Knowing is false perception. Not knowing is just being oblivious. If you truly arrived on the way that is free from doubt, you would realize that it is vast like open space through and through. How is it possible to impose affirmation and denial? At these words, Zhao Zhou was suddenly awakened. Wu Men's comment. Nan Quan was questioned by Zhao Zhou and he cracked like scattering tiles and melting ice, unable to dredge out the confusion even though Zhao Zhou did awaken, he still had to investigate 30 more years. In spring, there are hundreds of flowers. In autumn, there is moon, is the moon. In summer, there are cool breezes. In winter, there is snow. If there were no hangups with triviality, such would be the most splendid season. Let's sit for five more minutes. Now we write for five minutes.
Now, last week, didn't we talk about what we had read so far and then yeah. go into reading the commentary? So how was it for everyone? <laughs> so I, I'm really suspicious here. I mean, it seems like such a simple teaching that we all kind of know. You know, how did this awaken him? And was he just playing along? Zhao <coughs> Zhou. Um, anyway, I'm suspicious of the whole thing. It, oh. It's too easy, in a sense. It took him 30 more years to get it. So it, it wasn't obviously that easy to put it to, to awaken. Yeah, like in the Bhima Lakirti, they talk about different, different, well, there's a different levels of, of Bodhisattva. I don't know, different levels of enlightening. So, yeah. you know, what didn't he get that he needed 30 more years? Probably every belief and um, preconceived, preconditioned idea that he ever had still kind of came up over the next 30 years. <laughs> That's my guess. <laughs> It's sort of um, having to see through everything. Um, moment. Eyes are open. Let me put that with my keys. Thank you. I I see with each of these uh, a tension between the Theravadan and the Mayana, mm -hmm. and uh, so Zalzo is kind of taking the in not uh, trusting the in thinking that you can figure this out with more of a Theravadan kind of approach. Well, for me, this past weekend, um, I partially attended an online mini retreat that Bhikkhu Bodhi was doing on Abhidharma. And just because, you know, I mean, Abhidharma is really pretty um, foreign to, to my view of the world or, or just I just don't think like that um, and it was it was astonishing um, but I was so happy because that Zen page a day calendar uh, one I think it was either Saturday or Sunday had um, ordinary mind is the path and so I could carry that with me into all this Abhidharma y'all know Abhidharma Abhidharma is uh, one of the three baskets in the in the traditional Buddhist studies, and what these it, it was not a part of um, the studies in the Buddhist lifetime, but the it, the people who studied it, who studied the Buddha's teachings and, and the Buddha's emphasis on mind, these people um, were the ones who this who. They were the great meditators. They studied all these different states of mind. If, if you uh, read the um, compassion and emptiness, um, boy, that, that book is just full of Abhidharmic insights. Um, the, they you know, break down, everything is just broken down into all these tiny little dhammas that they, they see as making up actuality. Um, they don't, Bhikkhu Bodhi wasn't talking about reality, he was talking about actuality. <laughs> and he talked about how um, in the West, we tend to let science be our guide as to what is, what's real, what's actual. Um, and, you know, not everybody's got a scientific mind. The, the Abhidharmists, um, were sort of the mental scientists of their time. And so they created this enormous structure and exceedingly detailed about how our senses and our mind work in, in everyday life. Uh, but, um, you know, you, to me, it just can't really be called ordinary mind. You know, it's, it's the jhanas, it's all these, you know, different kinds of meditative advanced states. And it's like, you know, it's definitely not chopping wood and carrying water <laughs> by, a, by a long shot. 
so um, I was really tickled when I saw that, oh, look, this, you know, here, here's the koan. So I've really got a nice, a nice balance between. Oh, this is a reaction against that. I, it, I, it's certainly my reaction. Um, I, you know, I mean, the Heart Sutra is a reaction against the Abhidharmist. So, you know, I, I, I guess, but I do believe there are, there is Mahayana Abhidharma. Uh, you know, there are some some who, who took on this path, but I don't think it's really a, a, a Chinese approach to things. So um, I, that's why I think they're focusing more on ordinary mind as opposed to dissecting it to see what it's made of. So that that that's my initial take on this. How about anybody else? Dissection seems counterintuitive. <laughs> Wait, what, what seems counterintuitive? Dissection. Oh. Dissection and compartmentalization. It mm -hmm. seems so counterintuitive to the practice. Yep. <laughs> but it's the basis of our education, isn't it? Which education? Are you talking Zen? What? Like, no, no, Western oh, education. Western education, absolutely, yes, yes, yes. I'm always struck by um, how they keep pointing to this um, knowing versus not knowing. And it, it was interesting to me that you can't land on knowing something or even not knowing something. <laughs> um, you know, there's a fluidity or some sort of... Um, just being in the moment that, you know, seems to um, go beyond trying to compartmentalize. And actually that's what our brains are set up to do is to, to dissect and to compartmentalize and to find an answer. And, you know, I, I get real uncomfortable if I think I don't know the answer to something, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I keep kind of searching to land somewhere and um, you know, I, I don't know, wasn't there a quote attributed to Jesus even maybe who said something about uh, the birds have their nests in the trees and the foxes have their, um, you know, their home in the holes or whatever it is, but the son of God or the son of man has nowhere to rest his head. Mm -hmm. You know, I, sometimes that, that evokes for me this whole not knowing thing, you know. Uh, we're not meant to we're meant to go beyond, I think. I, I think that's the gift that we're, we've been given actually, is to be able to, to maybe go a little bit further than being safe, or, you know, trying to figure it out, and planting our flag, you know. Um. What's the chance that we do in the morning that is, Form is not, form is not. Emptiness. Emptiness, emptiness is not, is not, or form is yes. emptiness. Empty. See, that's, that's the, for me, that embodies the practice. It, it's not one, it's not the other, it's both and neither. And for the first time in my life, I don't have to know in the way that I had to know before. that make any sense? Oh, yeah. Okay. It wouldn't work in law school, would it? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> you have any thoughts, Lori? Uh, well, I don't know. I, I think it's interesting the one thing you were saying about the, the Abhidharma and the, the jhanas and that compassion and emptiness being such a, I mean, you're going into all these altered states, which you know makes sense if people are sitting around meditating all the time, <laughs> they would do that. But on the other hand, it doesn't seem ordinary, ordinary. That's not ordinary mind. I can see a difference between those two. 
kind of like you said. Um, and I, I think of the ordinary, it's not just ordinary mind, but ordinary doings, you know, like ordinary, it's about living your life, you know, washing, cleaning the toilets and making food and all the other stuff, as opposed to something, something elevated or special. It's all very ordinary. And yet there's something more there. Just like in a woman's comment, um, the, there's a slightly, I had, did not realize that that wonderful little poem um, was, was part of a, um, a comment on a koan, but I have a slightly different version of it. Um, that this one uh, was translated by Stephen Mitchell, but it's 10,000 flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that one. I really like the, you know, the if your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things a little more than no hangups uh, with triviality. <laughs> but, you know. Um, I've always wondered if the simple farmer has ordinary mind. I suspect. Probably so. If he or she approaches life, they're out there. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> it just, I think I, it, it depends on the farmer, right? Yeah. Once I talked to a, a old time fisherman and he was, it was a little uh, boat and in the ocean and uh, he was smoking right near the engine and there was a big sign, no smoking. And so, so I said to him, you, you see that? No smoking. He looked over and he said, I can't read. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's how simple his life was, mm -hmm. maybe. Well, if you're a, somebody, a farmer, it, you deal with the elements. I mean, you have life as it is in your face all the time and life and death is around you every day in one fashion or another. You can't really escape that. It's, it's not like our lives, our lives living in a city where we're pretty comfortable. It's a um, William Blake had this kind of scheme of that we go from innocence to experience to organize innocence. And so the innocent is like the child and then you're man, you have all this experience and you get all goofed up in your mind and then you try to, so I think ordinary mind is that organized innocence. It's not, the child doesn't have ordinary mind because they haven't, you know, and there's also this thing that you guys have probably heard of, of uh, to the man who knows nothing, a mountain is a mountain and a stream is a stream and a, you know that and a river is a river, whatever. With some knowledge, a mountain is no longer a mountain, a river is no longer, and then to the man who's got understanding, a mountain is once again a mountain. So I, I think it's that organized innocence that is the ordinary mind to me. It's not yeah, what I, you... I think even a simple lifestyle um, doesn't preclude the possibility that you're carrying some sort of conditioning that might cause you to kind of fasten on ideas and beliefs that, you know, um, just like the rest of us, you know, that kind of might take you away from, you know, the actuality of what's actually happening, you know. Mm. Um, but certainly modern life makes, makes things um, much more complicated. Um, but still, anybody can be a believer, you know. Yeah, I just think a simple, a simple lifestyle, say, if you depend on nature for your existence, you're, um, you, you approach it in a very different way than you have all to have things easy. You know, it's just, you have a different set of way of looking at things, you know. Uh, my just, dear wise teacher, I'm going to um, take a different approach because my brother's wife um her family's from venezuela and they live off the land not venezuela veracruz 
and they live off the land and their life is filled with superstition and God and prayers and omens. And, and so it's just different constructs than mm. what we have living off the land. And, and so that's why I thought, you know, I don't know that, yes, living off the land brings you closer to the reality of the impact of nature on your life. But I don't necessarily know if it's if it if it um, is a state more open to ordinary mind because there are still constructs that people bring to land. It's just another. It's the city, just another farm. Right. Mm. Well, our all of our concepts are, um, you know, the. I think we had some earlier koans that talked about, you know, we are mirror mind is, is kind of what we're after in a sense of being able, you know, we are reflecting what's actually there, you know, what's happening to us without uh, all the, the, the concepts, the baggage that we would, might normally carry along with us and which allows us to respond appropriately rather than habitually or conditionally. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I think a simplified life, which I think is why, you know, people go off to monasteries. Um, they certainly put themselves in more of a pressure cooker personal situation, but it bring, you know, it just really makes all those things all the more obvious, I think. Um, and, you know, hopefully, you know, you're able to, to cope with them somewhat. Um, you know, mirror mind and, and seeing things as they really are, um, that that's, might be another way to describe ordinary mind. What is mirror mind? I've heard that, but I don't know what it means. Uh, it, it's a mind that, you know, you, you're you seeing what's actually there, you know, not, not just physically, but, you know, you, you can see the stress, you can see the, um, you know, a lot of the, I guess, psychological manifestations in a situation. And somehow that you, you're not your reaction to it um, is appropriate. As a it's not a Buddhist term, is it? Oh yeah, mm -hmm. I, you know, I think about the uh, the sixth patriarch. You know, the, the the northern school was the the leader of the northern school was the you know he put that that poem up on the wall about uh, getting the dust and cleaning off the mirror, uh, and. The, the patriarch said, you know, what mirror, what dust, you know, none of it's there. <laughs> so, you know, even though we're, we're of the sixth, uh, you know, uh, ultimately followers of the sixth patriarch's way, there's that mirror, that image of the mirror still comes up even, even you know, many generations afterwards. And I, I think it's, a, it's another image of being able to see things as they are. Is, is yeah, the moving. It's moving beyond your story. I mean, because uh, when you when I really sit quietly, I notice that almost to every situation, I'm bringing some sort of narration or story about it, and it's having that mind activity just totally drop the story. You know, that feels more like what they're talking about with ordinary mind. Yeah, I heard a, another kind of definition of that. It's very similar to what you said, Donna, that reflecting, um, reflecting life as it is, but then also um, not holding on to anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, the mirror doesn't hold a thing, you know, images come, images go. It's really a nice image. Yeah, that's the knowing and the not knowing. You can't land either one. It just is what is. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, shall we see what uh, Gu Go has to say about it? I guess let's keep going alphabetically. Kim, you're up next. <laughs> Gu Go's comment. <laughs> 
this case is utterly clear. In the earliest case, earlier case, Dongshan asked, what is Buddha? And Zhao Zhou asked, what is the way? The way or Buddha are essentially the same. Yet all the concepts you have about the practice about practice or Buddha, Buddha Dharma will not help you here. They also will not help you resolve your problems in life. What will help is to take this. How do you say that, Donna? Gong, gong on, I think. Gong on. Mm -hmm. As a mirror. Oops and recognize your misunderstanding, where you have erred. The key to Chan practice is to drop the colored glasses through which you mistakenly perceive the world. It's not about picking up a better pair of glasses or polishing them to make them shiny. Thus, practice does not produce the freedom you already have. It merely removes the obscur obscurations. That's great. Are you going by first name? Okay. Uh, there are several key ideas here. The way or path and how to practice it. What is the way or Tao? The way or the path in pre-modern China is a loaded term. On the one hand, it refers literally, literally to a path to walk on. On the other hand, it refers to the order of things, the way things are. The term in this context refers to both meanings. The way things are is the path one should walk on. How? It is to be ordinary. What is this ordinary mind? Is that the mind that you're having now with which you are reading these words? Is this something to practice, something to strive for? The more you practice to seek it, the further away it recedes. You may then say, okay, if we don't practice it, then what the heck am I doing in my practice? If you don't practice, how do you know that you will actually recognize the path? How do you know what, that what you're doing is right or wrong? The fact is, it's not about knowing. Anything that can be known is delusion. What about not knowing? Not knowing is just stupidity. <laughs> um, if you truly arrived on the way that is free from doubt, you would realize that it is vast like open space through and through. How is it possible to impose affirmation and denial? Yes, no again. Where's Donna? Oh, there. I'm sorry, I thought I'd unmuted. Practice does not produce awakening. Cultivation will not lead you to the way. To push Nantuan's analogy a bit further, consider the spaciousness of a large room. Does your presence in it obstruct its spaciousness? Does furniture hinder the spaciousness of the room? No. Whether you make a mess of the room or you clean it up, its spaciousness is not affected. Practice is like cleaning furniture or putting it in order. Is it useful? Depends. If you get caught up with cleaning or moving furniture around, then it's not so helpful. You probably cause many people in the room vexations. If you clean knowing that the furniture does not obstruct space, clean just to clean, then it is helpful for all who use the room. Affirmation and denial refers to all the problems that may arise from practice or from cleaning the room. Affirmation may be the virtue of practice. Denial may be the vexations one tries to get rid of, all of which are just furniture. From the perspective of spaciousness, however, nothing obstructs the way. Um, forgotten what IAG is. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, it's all good. Yeah. All good. Thank you. Thank you. 
<laughs> this is not to say, oh, since everything is originally fine, whether I clean the room or not, why bother cleaning? No, that is also wrong. This is why Wu Men pointed out that even though Zhezhou did awaken, he still had to investigate 30 more years. Yes, Zhezhou continued to clean the room and move furniture around. In Chan meditation halls, everything is very clean and tidy. Chan practitioners are taught to leave no trace behind. Cleaning or not, Chan, hall, Chan halls are already pure. Do we clean? Yes, this is practice. This is awakening. Practitioners learn to purify their body, mind, and the world around them without notions of purity. Most of you soil the place everywhere you go. After you eat, the table is a mess. After you go to the restroom, the toilet edges are dirtier. You have to clean. Yet, irrespective of clean or dirty, pure or impure, if you genuinely have no doubt whatsoever as to your true nature, then you are free, already pure. There are no obstructions. This is the ordinary mind. This expression, ordinary mind is the way, is from Mazu Daoyi, Nanquan's own teacher. Everyone comes to practice with a certain expectation or anticipation. Why, why is it that you anticipate? I was struck before there was the sentence, practice does not lead to enlightenment. That was a good one. Why is it that why is it that you anticipate? What do you expect to gain or lose? Is the sense of disease dissatisfaction you feel? Is is it the sense of disease, disease, dissatisfaction you feel in your life? You have expectations and anticipation because you have doubts at the most fundamental level. Doubts. about who you are. Is there a voice within you telling you that you lack something? You begin to question the routines of your daily life, such as, why am I going to work or to school? Why do I need to earn a living? So I can support myself or my family? What for, really? Is it because I want to be happy? Am I not happy? Our world capitalizes on this sense of, is this it? If you think you're ugly, there are cosmetics. If you have wrinkles, there are anti-wrinkle gels. If you feel angst, there is yoga and meditation. There are also drugs, alcohol, and all the addictions that people resort to in order to fill the emptiness inside. Some people come to Chan or Zen practice to fill the void. If you're in Japan, you're in luck, as in that country, there are answer books to all of these gangans, with poetic verses known as capping phrases. Each poetic capping phrase matches a gangan beautifully. So if you practice gangan or koan with these source books, you would make real progress. Unfortunately, as there are thousands of these capping phrases, you might spend a heck of a long time finding the best capping phrase to match your, your gong in. You don't have these source books in Chan, so you are doubly out of luck. In Chan practice, it is most important to first discover what obstructs and creates vexations or emotional afflictions in our hearts. We use methods to face them, embrace them, respond to them, and eventually let them go. This means that you will no longer live in the shelter vexations. You come out in the open and see the vastness of everything. If you don't actually engage with yourself this way, there's no hope of release. Practice is not about gaining freedom, but about realizing what obstructs you. Vexations obstruct. You must recognize that. Face it. 
embrace it, respond to it, then let it let go of it. This is what we call the four-step program of trauma. Anything that you cannot let go of in your life, whether it's an idea, a deal, or an object, a person or a thing will be an obstruction. Does it mean that you should just leave everything behind and literally move to a mountain? No. The Chan way is to completely immerse in the world and not be obstructed by it. This is because the obstructions are non-existent. They belong to the fantasy world you construct. There's actually nothing that obstructs you. The key is to let go, then to recognize this. The power behind your recognition to actually let go and be free comes from practice. Sadly, some people often recognize what needs to be done, but still cannot let go of any of their attachments. They are emotionally bound. For Chan practitioners, the world becomes an arena where you realize wisdom and express your compassion. If you think that you need to literally relinquish everything, deny everything, in order to be free, then you are holding on to an attachment to freedom. All of the teachings are merely pointers that you may uncover your intrinsic original freedom. When you are freed, all things are free. That's what is meant by it is vast like open space through and through. Thus, essential Chan practice is not about emulation, gaining, or changing this into that. And it is definitely not about imposing your spiritual ideal on old views you uphold. If you want to know what the way is, ordinary mind is the way. As a rule, you don't see things as so ordinary. You make a big deal out of everything, turning it all into a concrete, rigid, unchanging obstacle in order to overcome or get rid of it. You make a thing out of something that is originally not a thing. So a kid certainly even does this when they're having a tantrum of some sort, aren't they? Oh, that was Gail. Decades ago, driving with my teacher, my teacher and others to look at a property in upstate New York to build our Dharma Drum Retreat Center, we parked the car at a spot overlooking the site. Everyone but me and one other person got out. We noticed a pile of brown stuff in front of us on the road. The person said, rather annoyed, look at that. Someone <laughs> brought their pet here, let it poop on the road and didn't even clean it up. That is so unethical. And just down the street, there's a station with plastic bags. The person could easily have picked up after the pet and left the environment clean. I just sat there without reacting. She righteously stomped toward the pile holding a plastic bag and was about to clean up the mess when she suddenly turned around and yelled, they're only pine cones. And she smiled. When I heard that, I simply joined my palms. It was a wonderful teaching. This is like when I was so offended that someone had brought a sound machine to the Austin Zen Center. And it was right like three seats down from me, Zabatons down from me. And, and I was so angry the whole period of Zazen. And then Kosho was giving a talk and I realized he had the window open and what I was listening to was the fountain in the yard. <laughs> Not a sound machine. <laughs> and how how I shifted completely my thinking about how terrible they were. Hmm. Uh, we have great ideals, principles, morals, and other vexations based on misperceptions. This is a simple example of it. But we do it all the time from moment to moment. We can hold a grudge against a friend for 30 years, even though his or her behavior has obviously changed as people change every moment, whether they want to or not. Some people cannot call their friends, even their family members, because of their view or perception. We make our judgments of people, we make our judgments of people in our daily life 
we can partnerize them into different categories, a friend, a foe, a neutral person. The way to respond to the situations in life is to experience the world with an ordinary mind, to simply be free from seeing through colored glasses. This ordinary mind is a mind or heart without judgment, discriminating, thinking, prejudice, vexations. So ordinary that it is the most normal way of being. The relationship between practice and awakening involves being free in the midst, in the midst of daily life, free from what obstructs you, from what creates suffering, vexations. But it is hard to do because your years of habitual tendencies, patterned ways of thinking, have shaped you into every possible neurosis except being ordinary. You're constantly discriminating between good and bad, between I want, I don't want, I like, I dislike. This is hard to shake free from. That's the core of the issue here. The task is to have concrete methods to free yourself from this. First, you must First, you practice in a simple environment. Then you practice in the complexity of daily life. Simpler environment means daily meditation practice, group practice, retreat practice. In daily life, you practice to be free. You can do that then in the complexity of daily life, in challenging times, threats and praise, you will have the ordinary mind. In times of gain and loss, fame and defamation, praise and ridicule, joy and sorrow, you respond with an ordinary mind. How do you respond when troubles, calamities, disasters, personal challenges face you? The way you habitually respond to them shows the level of your vexations. It shows the level of attachment and delusion and suffering. It shows how far you have strayed from the ordinary mind. The difference here between vexations and wisdom, unordinary and ordinary mind, is perception. If you perceive that meditation is important even though your legs are in great pain, you will endure it. But if you see little value in meditation, even though you may have the same level of pain as the first person, you will be miserable. If you think there's something to be gained from meditation, such as I'm going to get enlightened or I'm going to be blissed, then perhaps the level of your suffering will be reduced. Your biases color your experiences. Your discrimination between good and bad, right and wrong, gain and loss, beautiful and ugly, life and death, are anchored in a false sense of I, as if it were something permanent, separate. You only need to examine yourself closely to know that there's nothing that is unchanging, not even your opinion or sense of identity. Guys, I can read now if that's okay. Oh, yes. Okay. If someone blames you for something you didn't do, observe your need to defend yourself, to justify, to find justice. That need is vexation. It is not to say that you shouldn't correct things when they are wrong. Correct them with peace of mind, with an ordinary mind. If others don't accept what you say, it's all good, except with an ordinary mind. If a, per if a certain person yells at you or blames you for something you didn't do, it is that person's story. So why do you want to play a role in someone else's drama? This is a fantasy. It's as if you were watching a play and you suddenly jumped on stage to be part of it. Why would you want to do that? Similarly, you already project so much onto the world. You already have so much chatter and clutter in your mind. Why would you want to take on that of other people? Recognize your vexations, accept them, respond to them, and let them go. Put down the colored glasses, drop the facade, Remember the four-step Chan program. With daily practice in more complex situations, you will actually have a chance to survive vexations. Very simply, practice involves first being aware of the present moment. You need a method to do that, to bring your mind from the past and future into the present. 
if you observe your vexations, you will see that they are all they are always colored by past and future, by anticipation, expectation, past coloration. So in order to see things clearly, you need to be in the present to see things as they are without filtering them through your colored lenses. To do that, you need to practice, but don't practice to be enlightened. Practice to be free from these patterns. A concrete method is the breath or just the simple act of sitting. When the mind strays off from sitting, you bring it back to sitting, to this act of sitting, to being in the present. How do you know you're sitting? Your body is sitting. You have a posture in sitting. If the mind is full of wandering thoughts, this is not sitting. When the body is sitting, the mind is sitting. Since it is very hard to do, we give people something more complex but easier. For example, following the breath or investigating the watu. An example would be, what is the meaning of ordinary mind? Ordinary mind is the way. What is the ordinary mind? Meditate on that. To every answer that comes up, tell yourself it is not right. Because if you come up with an answer, you will become satisfied. Ah, I got it. But if you think you got it, then you lose it. Everything that can be gotten is delusion. Whatever you get is your habit pattern, your vexations, and your biased perception. In practice, the more you strive and seek, the more it is separate from you. So should you not practice? If you don't practice, how do you resolve the fundamental question or dilemma about the relationship between practice and enlightenment? How do you know that you're doing it right? Practice is not about right or wrong. If you think you know something or that you've gained something, some truth, you are far, far from it. These days, there are practitioners who are fond of saying that the don't know mine is the way. <coughs> if you misunderstood this, if you misunderstand this and think that not knowing is the way, then that's just escaping from the problem. The don't know mind is not about doing nothing about things, nor is it keeping a mind blank. The wisdom in this lies in the context of the going on or we to practice. If you want to watch earnestly to resolve the sense of not knowing, wonderment, or angst that you experience with regard to the critical phrase, phase, phrase you're meditating on. If you resolve it, you will have no more doubt. However, if you think that one awakening is enough, then you're wrong. As I said earlier, after Zazo's awakening, he continued his practice for 30 years. What was he doing in all those 30 years? He was applying the ordinary mind to all situations of life. Whenever he he complicated things with his projections and vexations. He returned to the ordinary mind. Nanquan was questioned by Zhao and he cracked like scattering tiles and melting ice, unable to dredge out the confusion. Nanquan, <coughs> being so compassionate, spills out everything in plain words, causing Zhao Zhou to be awakened. But why does Wu Man say he was unable to dredge out the confusion? Because he has already said too much, and the consequence is 30 more years of practice for Zhao Zhou. In fact, it's more than 30 years. After Nan Quan passed away, Zhao Zhou sojourned to different teachers and met other practitioners for 20 more years to refine his practice. Indeed, sometimes if a teacher is too grandmotherly kind, telling the students everything, the students cannot stand on their own. Still, such kindness is necessary sometimes because people's causes and conditions differ. In spring, there are hundreds of flowers. In autumn, there is the moon. In summer, there are cool breezes. In winter, there is snow. 
If there were no hang-ups with triviality, such would be the most splendid season. Here, woman adds more words on top of Nanquan's verbosity. I too fall into this error. The verse, the verse above describes what is most obvious, ordinary, and for that reason, it is most appropriate. In summer, there is a cool breeze. The coolness eases the heat. In winter, the snow is beautiful, but it can be devastatingly cold, chilling down to the bone. In autumn, there's a moon, but the moon waxes and wanes, and it can also be covered by dark clouds. In spring, there are wonderful flowers, but all flowers wither and die. Birth and death are always together, good and bad intertwine. In the midst of these ups and downs, you face them with peace of mind, with ordinary mind. All things as they are, are already complete. Is there a need to, to meddle with them? to insert your own self-referentiality amid everything. Isn't that extra? Of what use is it to inject yourself into your relationships and various affairs? Doing so is to trivialize them. Not doing so is what is meant by not having hang-ups. Please recognize your hang-ups in life. Accept them for what they are. Respond to them by not adding anything to complicate them more. Then you can eventually let go of them. This is the Chan way. This is the practice of the ordinary mind. I thought that's a beautiful one. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of sage advice in here. It really differentiates for me the difference between innocence and organized innocence. Mm -hmm. you know, th that, that this is a very sophisticated practice as ordinary mind. I don't think it's the farmer or the peasant. Mm -hmm. except, except from the view of what Lori's talking about where they have this incredible sophistication and knowledge about the earth. Yeah. Yeah, that was my point. And so, some of them do, but, but I'm thinking of Linda's grandparents who had about a second grade education and they were lovely people, but I think they were filled with a lot of um, what she's calling vexations you know, they didn't see things clearly, I don't think. Tim, could you remove the um, the text? No. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Tim, has anyone ever called you a curmudgeon? <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's just playful. <laughs> He's a playful curmudgeon. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I really like, um, you know, um, Grogu's comments because it's also very practical. And, you know, one thing I've been noticing about uh, Buddhism in general is it is very practical when you really get down to it. I mean, um, I went, I also did a retreat uh, and it was a Theravadan online retreat uh, recently. And the talks about uh, Buddha's, you know, um, teachings from a Theravadan point of view uh, with this particular teacher really struck me as being incredibly practical. And um, I really like his talking here, uh, Hugo, about um, these are habits. Mm -hmm. The sense of what we are, it's not a thing. It's just like a, a conglomeration of habitual ways of, you know, responding to things, you know, and, it, and the first thing to do is to notice that that's what you're doing. 
just to notice it. That's that's one of the practical things you can do. And then not to not to judge it, but just to kind of take a breath for a minute, you know? And, um, you know, I've been working with that a little bit, the whole idea of, um, you know, all my, my conditioning when I get triggered, it's, it's really just a habitual groove or habit, you know, that's happening. And um, if I can take a deep breath and you just allow it just to kind of move off that habitual reaction, then really what I'm left with is sort of like just nothing, you know, like what's happening, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, to kind of think that you don't have to, have to do what you've been doing all your life. You don't have to, you know, it's, it's, you can draw, you can actually notice it. That's what, that's what practice is, you know, I guess is, it, it kind of primes us for that noticing. Yeah. I really liked it. The challenge of practice for me, I was trying to, I was listening and thank you. Um, and I'll try to articulate it is Knowing that practice is a, a lifetime and multi-lifetime um, path. And that knowing at the same time that any point at my path, I am sometimes, at different points on my path, I'm sometimes faced with what I call a Sophie's Choice. If you saw the movie, there's a very poignant scene where the commandant at the, at the concentration camp asks her to choose which child of her two children will go to the incinerator to, to be killed. And she can't make a choice and she makes an impulsive one and just pushes one forward. Maybe two seconds later, it would have been a different child. But I think there's um. There's a misconception we have sometimes with the word choice, I mean, and freedom, because we think that that implies that that, that word freedom means um, things will be ideal and they're not, as in Sophie's case. N neither choice was an ideal situation. It, either one was going to be painful. And then there was a third option, and that is if she didn't choose, he would take them both. And I find myself in those situations and really don't know how to proceed sometimes, knowing that my practice so far is limited, knowing that I am not aware of all of my perceptions and wanting also at the same time to live by the precepts and with a clear mirror, you know? And so sometimes it's very, very difficult for me to discern if the decision I'm making is in, in the Buddhist sense from a free and boundless space. I think that's really true for me too, Nelda. So often I find that um, even the word choice it, it's not, it doesn't feel like a choice because it is so habituated. You know, I say or do something when there is uh, an opportunity to do one or say one or of two different things out of habit. I say or do whatever is habitual for me. So it's not like I'm even making a cognizant, I mean, a, um, you know, a, a choice that I'm really conscious of. And for me, I think that's where my practice does come in. So often it's not in the moment, but it's afterwards when I'm sitting and I, I think about what I have said or done. And then it becomes clearer to me. Um, yes, that was the right choice or no, that wasn't. And for me, that helps 
a little bit because there's just that little bit of awareness the next time. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Well, hindsight is twenty twenty, <laughs> and so. But, but, you, but you know that wasn't always true for me. Now the uh, hindsight, seriously, I mean, I, I my habits were so ingrained that I would look back and say, well, of course it was the right decision. I would not think about it. I would not think about it. And I see that in family members um, today that are so set in certain ways and you cannot change their mind. You cannot give them another option. And that is the way I have been also in the past and still am in a lot of times. So I, I wish I could say my hindsight is twenty twenty, but it is not. <laughs> it's look, getting better. Look how it's how difficult how we're not able to change people's opinions, you know, in terms of the political arena and the capital and all that stuff. You know, I was my wife and I were talking tonight about how there's no tipping point. There's no point at which people will change their mind, which we always right. believed in, and no rational argument that seems to make any difference. Right. I have to find the article that, that shows recent the neuro, recent neurological studies that at this point, so many of us, all of us, are hardwired. It's sort of that generational blessing or generational curse that gets embedded and, and passed down at this point neurologically. So no, there isn't any changing them. So how can you fault people for, fault people for who they are? That is, that is their hard wiring on some levels. I truly believe that if people, I truly believe this. If I could do better, I would. If others could do better, they would. And Anne Frank said that too. I, I still believe people are good at heart. Yeah. Yeah. I don't well, like actions, good. but I believe that sometimes they're... Um, it, so what, what did you say, Gail? I'm sorry, Gail. No, I just said that in my case, um, there came a point when I was actually had willingness, a little bit of willingness to question what I was thinking or believing. And what brought me to that place was suffering. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, plain and plain and simple. I was really wasn't willing to question things too much until um, I realized that the way I had been thinking and what I had been doing was causing just an immense amount of um, you know suffering for me and you know other members of my family too. So you know, and but you can't you can't bring anybody else to that point. I think that's kind of what you're saying, Stephanie and, and Nelda. Yes. You know, it's, you know, we don't know why. It's a mystery why that little willingness kind of suddenly started to open up there. And, uh, you know, I, I can't tell you why. Um, what I do like from what we just read is that I don't need to go to a monastery or a cave, you know, and practice there for the rest of my life. You know, that it's both, just like this knowing and not knowing. It's sort of, you need, you need the time to reflect and to be still and to allow a space to open. And then you also need relationship with all the, you know, challenges and events that happen in, in life. And honestly, both of those things are key. Um, so sometimes I get mad that I can't just up and leave my problems and you know, I don't know, go on retreat for three years or something. And, uh, you know, and, and yet at the same time, I make so much progress when I finally work through some sort of challenge, you know, um, but I need both. I do need, I do need my retreat time. So that's kind of cool the way he talks about that there. I've got to go, guys. Okay. Bye. Well, I think our time. time's kind of up. Over. So it is. So Lori and Kim, will you stay on to meet with me afterwards? Sure. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Thanks for leading, Good night. Donna. Bye, Donna. Thank you. Everybody.
please take really good care. We seem to be in a pretty dangerous place here right now. So yeah, they just sent, uh, closed the schools. Oh, is that right? My daughter just said, yeah, the, wrote Baby me tonight. Baby? Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. At oh, least her school, her school is closed. The, the elementary school, whatever it is. Oh, the elementary school. I'll yeah. have to check with my daughter and see what's yeah. going on. Well, everybody, right. stay safe. Take care. Thank okay. you all. Okay. Bye bye. bye.